you know, an, another thing we talked about yesterday is how local history does not get taught in schools. Yeah. And what a shame that is. Yeah. And I, like, I get it. It's kind of, you've got to, you've got to educate the children of the nation and, and there needs to be a fairly consistent method to do that. I, I do understand that, but, but what a shame that, that we don't talk through, you know, the, the, the greatness of, of what we were and the ugliness of what we were and, and to understand all that. I, I think it's so important to, to really dig into history, to learn it and, and learn, learn mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's why I'm so grateful for this conversation and for your knowledge. Yeah. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. Four years ago, I bought a new truck for the first time ever, and I was so excited. It was incredible. It smelled good. It felt good. I wasn't constantly afraid of breaking down. You know, it was awesome. But after I drove it for a couple of weeks, I do the same thing that I always do, and the backseat started just it started to fill up with stuff. You know, I'm guiding elk hunters and deer hunters, and I'm duck hunting and I'm fly fishing, and all that gear just accumulates, and pretty soon. I wasn't able to take people with me anymore. And I was embarrassed, you know, people would ask for a ride and like, nah, sorry, man, I've I've got too much stuff with me, but I couldn't put it in the bed because then it gets damaged by weather. So I go to the internet and I'm looking for options and I ended up buying a deck to drawer system. Now this was a, a big purchase for me, but it, it's something that I felt like I needed and, and it looked like it was going to be a good product. And it really was. Dect came out with a new drawer system this year, and they've made some meaningful improvements over the previous one. You have almost no wasted space in your truck bed now, so you can access the sides of the drawers, and then the drawers roll a full 18 inches farther out, so you can actually access the back of the drawer, even if you don't have a lot of arm reach. There's some really strong tie-down points on top that have a 400-pound load rating. So if you're going to haul something like a motorcycle or big coolers or whatever, you can really strap your gear down and make it secure. You can lock these drawer systems. So you can lock the drawers. Or if your tailgate locks, then uh, nobody can access the drawers anyways. So I actually feel like my stuff is more secure inside this drawer system than in the cab of my truck. That's a big deal to me. The complete deck system is made in America by Americans. And you know that that's something that that I love and appreciate. They've got one that will fit in any truck or van that's been made in America in the last 20 years plus. You can go to decked.com slash six ranch and get free shipping. But just being honest with you, they get free shipping to everybody. I also, while you're there, want you to check out their deco line. So they've got a bunch of different boxes and storage containers that either fit on top of or inside of the drawer system. And those are built really robust. I saw the prototypes at an event this summer. I'm impressed. I'm excited to get my hands on them. I haven't yet, but the the prototypes were were super badass. And the ones that uh, that are in production model 
they're available now over at decked.com. So even if you just need a place for some tools or you need a new bow case or you know something along those lines, go check that out. And if you're driving around right now and your backseat is just full of gear and you can't haul people around, maybe you should consider uh, looking at the, the full deck drawer system because it's a good piece of gear. It was a good purchase for me and, and I hope it helps you. In the United States, there are about 15.2 million hunters. That's how many hunting licenses we sell in the country. And they spend around $21 billion per year, which breaks down to an average of $2,800 per hunter. Now, we need to be really smart about how we spend that money. You can't spend it on stuff that's going to break. Otherwise, you have to buy something else again, and you end up costing yourself even more. We also need to be smart about how much weight we carry in our packs because that's a serious limiting factor. One way to remove about five pounds out of your pack without sacrificing your ability to find animals is to get rid of your spotting scope and tripod. Now there's a time and a place for those things and I carry both of them a lot, but if I need to go lightweight, I'm going to carry stabilized binoculars and the best stabilized binoculars I have ever used are from Sig Sauer. They are the Zulu 6, and they just came out with a new pair called the Zulu 6 HDX. I use the 12 power magnification model. They weigh 21.5 ounces, and they have two modes of stabilization. So you throw the lever forward once, and that's going to stabilize the image. If you turn it off and turn it back on again, that's going to stabilize it even more. And I'm not kidding. It is more stable than if you're glassing from a tripod. It is absolutely incredible. You're going to be able to see stuff at just incredible distances and really break it down. Like you're going to be able to tell the difference between a Billy and a Nanny mountain goat at a mile. You're going to be able to actually see if there's a kicker coming off that four by four muley that just popped up over the hill. They work great at early and last light. They work great at high light. They fit really well in my hands. Like this was one of the first products that I asked SIG to make when I started working with them. And to no surprise, they were already on it. They were way ahead of me. But this is a really good piece of gear. I highly encourage you look into it. You can go to SIGSour.com. Look for the Zulu 6 HDX. Comes in a few different magnification settings. But the one that I like the best is the 12 power. Check it out. I feel like I've done a good job about not talking about hunting so far, but you brought it up. So here we go. I have never found an arrowhead in the Valley. Yeah. Uh, I don't know of any arrowheads found in the Valley. Yeah. Do you? Yes. You do? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, just as an example, uh, uh, the other day, uh, well, I'd been given a presentation on, uh, one of the pioneer women, um, who, you know, your family's tied in through, um, Fanny Johnson. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so of course a direct line to you and your family. Um, she's a inter- very interesting woman. And, um, I went, I just went to Bramlett cemetery to take a picture of her, uh, gravestone mm-hmm. to be part of the presentation. And I was like, you know, this is a, this would be a great site for an Indian camp right here. And I just started wandering around the edges of the, uh, cemetery, you know, where, uh, just outside the fence mm-hmm. uh, you know cattle horses grazing up around there and so there's bare ground and looking around you know like oh there's a chip uh, there's a flake oh, wow. oh there's a grinding stone yeah. oh there's an arrowhead you know huh. i mean so uh yeah i'm in the valley it's it's harder to a 
most of it's private ground. Yeah. And most of it's got a uh, uh, good ground cover on it. Right. So it's harder to see them. For sure. Uh, but 100%, uh, like when they plow the field there at the uh, confluence, you know, I, as a kid, w- wandering down there, picked up arrowheads. And then you go down the lower valley um, around where the warm, kind of warm springs are there towards the mouth of the canyon. Big, big campsites there. And if mm. you, you know, I used to fish those creeks. And so, um, you know, um, trespassing basically but i think they'd see a kid fishing and yeah. uh, you know they would and right. i'd pick up arrowheads along the stream you know the little dry creek rock okay. creek and yeah. yeah so they're here just harder harder to see harder and, to see and no archaeology has been done right because most folks you know understandably are not that thrilled with the idea of uh someone finding a native site on their property it makes them a little nervous yeah. yeah, and and with good reason. With good reason, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, it makes them nervous. Yeah. You know, when we did this big juniper removal project, there's a tree just off the hill here that they said, "Well, we don't know that this was a burial tree, but it looks like it could be, so we have to leave this one." Right. Like, yeah. That's fine. That's yeah. cool. But what can also happen is you end up with a, a sensitive site that now you can no longer access in the way that you used to for, you know, how you conduct business with your agriculture and, and things like that can really stack up against, against a ranch in a really negative way. So there is a, there is a fear around that. Oh, for sure. I, I know one of the uh, ranchers, I won't mention yeah. the name, but I always talked to them that the, uh, in the, when they did the, Township surveys in 1867, they noted Nez Perce trails, you know, um, one of them, one of coming through the valley. And I was talking to one of the local ranchers like, hey, you don't mind. Uh, let's uh, walk over there and just um, see if we can see any sign at all that uh, that trail might have been there. And it was also claimed in their notes, you know, that that was a campsite. And it was like, you know, we could probably wander around there and see. Of course, the rancher was like <laughs> nervous, you yeah. know, wanted to look and yeah. wanted to do it, but also wanted that kept on the down low. And of course, like you're saying, you know, understandable. Yeah. We have something interesting on the salmon that, uh, as far as archaeology, which is the dig site at Graves Creek. And they found evidence of humans being there as as far back as 16,000 years ago. Yeah. And then they stopped the project. So maybe if they went deeper, they would have found more, maybe not. Do we think that the Nez Perce are connected with those people who are pre-Clovis? Yeah. I mean, boy, that's interesting stuff like that. Cooper's Ferry site, you know, on the salmon talking about, um, you know, I think they bumped it up to 16, 6, 16, 8, somewhere in there. So, those uh you know what they're finding in that very very earliest oldest it's pre-clovis it's pre-folsom these are the stem stem points you know which are a different technology than clovis and 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 they trace back to japan right right they can say that like oh the japanese uh, islands we these are the closest analogy to that uh tool manufacturing technology the closest uh match is you know out of japan so you know, that's curious. Yeah. And, and the land, you know, there was nobody at that time frame. there wasn't an opening in the glaciers. No. And the sea was, uh, 50, you know, 50 feet lower. Mm-hmm. And so any evidence that we might have is out there in the ocean yeah. of that, that migration. And I think Rimrock shelter in, uh, 
where is that Harney County down that way? You know, it's 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 pushing those same sort of dates early. It's pre full uh, Clovis, mm. pre pre fulsome. Yeah, you know it, it. I'm a boat guy. I like boats, and I think boats are one of the the biggest and most important parts of of human migration technology. Yeah, yeah. It is the most efficient way to to travel with weight is by boat. Yeah. Continues to be, so it makes a lot of sense to me that you know before the ice age ended, whether that was Younger Dryas or something else, we have people coming out of Japan on boats, following the shelf ice across, so they've still got access to fresh water, um, even if they have to melt it. There's going to be lots of wildlife along that shelf. Oh yeah. Um, there's going to be places that they can pull off and, and camp on ground. Um, maybe even stay for, for periods of time. I'm sure that there yeah. was encamp, encampments of people who are nomadic, but, you know, had established sites there, whether they're building those out of whale bones or driftwood or who knows what. But it it's very conceivable to me that you could take a people from Japan across that shelf and down the Pacific coast and then up these major rivers like the Fraser and the Columbia. But for somebody to come across from Japan come up the Columbia, up the Snake, up the Salmon to Graves Creek and have done so in an amount of time where the tool manufacturing technology is still traceable and linear back to Japan means that it happened relatively quickly. Yeah. Otherwise, the technology would have adapted really quickly as well. Yeah. That's just incredible to me. Yeah. Um, incredibly fascinating. So if you think about that more then you would have had people that have been settled here for, you know, five or 6,000 years before these Clovis people start to come down that cross Beringia yeah. and what kind of conflict would have occurred there? You know, it must've been incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And we really don't know. Yeah. I mean, we really don't know, you know, so I think there's a lot of stuff still going on. I mean, it's, it's really interesting and exciting because a lot of those older theories, uh, you know, how it all went down is is being changed and yeah. you know people are have to go back to the drawing board and look at that like you said now i mean i think the more accepted thing is the kelp highway like you're describing along that coast whether they're doing it partially in boats or whether they're just hugging the shoreline you know but yeah. the, it's clear that they came that way and they went clear up these river valleys like you think about that's a long ways from the coast up the columbia make a couple turns and find yourself up the salmon, you know, up there, there's, there's a few twists and turns along the way, but yeah, I mean, that's close to 700 river miles. Yeah. That's a long ways. Uphill miles. Yeah. Yeah. And that span of 16,000 years, it starts to get a little wacky, at least in my head, because it's just hard to conceive of that kind of time frame. You know I mean? Like I look at my own family, like, oh, they've been here since 1878 or whatever. That's yeah. a long time. But in the scheme of things, nah, it's just a drop in the bucket, you know. And so over that, you know, if if you're looking from a Nez Perce perspective, and, you know, they're saying we've been here forever. We've always been here. And um, you're trying to, but 16,000 years is forever. No. And the changes that occur over that time are, you know, epic. Right. And, you know, we've got... 22,000-year-old tracks in the White Sands in New Mexico. That's wild. We've got big question marks hanging over South America yep. and these civilizations that were pretty advanced down yep. there. We're yep. finding out more and more about them. So it's very possible that this 
that these people that were here 16,000 years ago were not the first people there at all either. Yeah. Uh, another thing that's, that's interesting to me, uh, as, as far as species migration, we know that horses and camels evolved in North America first. The horse that the Nez Perce used was the Appaloosa, which the Appaloosas of today are, um, by and large, one of my least favorite types of horses. Uh, I think that the old ones were probably really great, and then we bred them for the spots on their butt for too long, and uh, yeah. now I don't like them too much anymore. But there's still some good ones out there. Now, there's been some direct genetic matches between the Appaloosas here and some horses in Mongolia that look like Appaloosas. And it makes me wonder if we didn't still have horses here. Hmm. Like if there weren't. I didn't know that piece. That's curious. If there weren't some appies that were here that never left. If, if there weren't horses already in North America before the Spaniards. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would like to know more about all of that. You know, there's a couple of accounts of, particularly on the McFarland side out of the Nez Perce tribe about talking about that. Appaloosas and, mm-hmm. you know, they're breeding for more spotty horses, but um, I just don't know enough about it. Yeah. That's really interesting stuff. Okay. So hunting, uh, what was the order of precedence as far as species that were important to hunt? Was it, was it deer? Was it elk? Was it bighorns? Was it bears? Uh, as far as what we had here? As far as the Nez Perce side or the, yeah. um, I mean, like you can look at an account like, you know, uh, uh, Henry Spaulding packing up and leaving Lapaway with old Joseph to come into the valley. That's his first uh, Spaulding's trip into the valley. And, you know, day by day, he's writing in his diary what they killed. Mm. And so what you see is like, holy smoke, a lot of bighorn sheep. Yeah. As they make their way. And, you know, the settlers, you also read the settler accounts that they're like, bighorn sheep is tasty stuff. Mm-hmm. And they preferred it and liked it. But you'll see that they, if I'm going to get this probably wrong, but to my memory, the mostly on that trip back and forth uh, was bighorn sheep. Mm-hmm. And then um, deer and elk, of course. And if I remember a wolf, like okay. they shot, killed and ate a wolf. Mm. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. But the main push of the um, trip up here was to process salmon. So they were coming up to the lake and the river um, to get a good supply of, uh, you know, winter salmon. Uh, I know some of the Nez person along the Columbia uh, teased Lewis and Clark for uh, wanting to eat dogs. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's interesting that they're eating, eating a wolf over here, but they're giving them a hard time about wanting to, to eat dogs. I better check my source on that. It's been a minute since I've read that account, but it's sticking out of my head that I think they did eat and kill a wolf, but uh, I'll, yeah. You know, when we did the show with Jim Akinson about, uh, what, you know, he experienced in the Frank they only found uh, elk remains at one of those sites. It was almost all bighorns. Yeah, yeah. And I've talked to other folks, you know, I mean, Bruce, if you talk to Bruce Womack, the for- former archaeologist here on the Forest Service, you know, that's one thing he'll say is that, you know, you don't find a lot of uh, elk. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have accounts of elk, Nez Perce elk hunts in, you know, between here and the Grand Round Valley. Um, so no doubt about it, they were hunt- hunting elk. Do you think they use dogs to hunt? I don't know. 
I've never seen an account of that, but they definitely had dogs. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't put them to work somewhere or another in that regard. I would have. Yeah. Yeah. You would, you would think. Yeah. You know, but you, of course you get out, you've probably seen some of them and you get out and you can see these drives mm -hmm. that they've built, you know, little, just there. It's not a whole lot sometimes. Just a little uh, rock thing here just to hurt them just through this pinch point where they're waiting, you know, uh, deer drives or yeah. uh, maybe elk. I don't know. Probably deer drives. Sheep for sure. Sheep for sure. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's where I find most of the arrowheads is in mountain passes where it'd be really easy to, to funnel animals through. Yep. And I think that there was probably a, a couple dudes hiding in a blind with oh, yeah. all the arrows that they could oh, yeah. build and yep. fling it at everything that came running through. Yep. But that's where I really have the question about dogs. It's not so much like the pushing or the gathering of animals for hunting, but uh, tracking wounded animals. Yeah. Because archery inherently wounds a lot of animals. Yep. And archery with, and I don't care how good of a shot you are, if you're using a, a little stone point that's susceptible to breaking, you're going to wound a bunch of animals. Oh, for sure. Especially if you're doing it in this situation where they're moving as they're coming through. Uh so I would imagine that they use dogs to, uh, to track and, and maybe even to, uh, to help them take down and kill animals that yep. were already wounded. Yep. I don't know that right offhand that I can, uh, think of an account where that, you know, I've seen that, but like yeah. you said, I, w I wouldn't be surprised at all that they, they didn't, they weren't. What do you know about their, their Buffalo trips to Montana? This, this is another one that's interesting to me. Yeah. It was super important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for the hides and the meat and, um, uh, those were big deals to them. And I do know that, um, of course the Indian agents on the Lapaway were constantly trying to stop that. Really? Uh, because they wanted them to stay home and gotcha. tend, tend to the farm and, gotcha. and not be, you know, and they, they, uh, they would roll out and be gone for two years, three years, Yeah. you know, cause that, that's pretty, that's a long trip. Sure. And so by the time they went over there and, you know. You, you, they'd end up spending a couple of years gone. They were so wealthy in protein here between the, the deer elk, the bighorns, the bears, uh, the salmon. Oh. They didn't want for meat, I can't yeah. imagine, very often. So, you know, I, I like to think that those bison trips were as much about just taking a trip and maybe getting some fresh genetics for your tribe. As, as it was about anything else. Oh, I think I think you're right. I it mean, doesn't make know, sense to I, ride to Great Falls and come back with a bag of jerky. Yeah, and it's so much in their culture was wrapped up in, you know, that idea. I mean, if you're talking about a warrior culture, and um, you know, you're also going to go fight enemies for your holding on to your hunting grounds, right? So um, there's a lot of prestige wrapped up in warrior culture, and uh, stories told around the campfire, these people that are respected in, uh, warriors in, mm -hmm. in this culture, you know, I mean, as a young person, you would also aspire to get a shot at that. Right. Yeah. And so, um, cause that was one of the things that would elevate you is your courage. Right. And so you don't get a chance to show that unless you got an enemy. Of course they did. They, they always had to keep an eye on their own boundaries from, you know, what's loosely been called the snakes, you know, the Bannock, Shoshone and Paiute, that sort of, um, folks that would be 
pushing up against their boundaries and say uh, over across the mountains in Eagle Valley and over that way. But um, so I think like you're saying, it was a lot of things like a chance to go over to Montana because yeah. I always want to see what's over the next hill and to go hunt buffalo, which is a whole different kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and takes a little bit of courage if you're hunting buffalo on uh, horses uh, different from elk, different from bighorn. This is a little more fearsome beast that you got to contend with. Not only that, but wherever there's buffalo, there's something that wants to eat a buffalo. Yep. And you're going to have Grizzlies. lots of opportunity for conflict, not only with other animals, but with other tribes. People. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's a hundred percent in there. Um, you know, you can see in settler accounts, again, of mostly these farm boys that are just like, dying for a chance to get off the farm sure and you'll see them writing about uh really wanting these daydreams about wanting to be an indian they don't Mm. come out and say that but the life of the freedom of a life where uh they would also denigrate that idea that all they do is oh they go around and hunt and fish that's all they do and they make the women do all the work so they would they would be longing for that life Mm -hmm. because of the freedom of it. Because if you think about a hard nosed dad on the farm and traditionally, you know, you had to hang on the farm till you're 18 or so till you, you were allowed to go out and make your own way because you had to pay your dues to the family and that just the daily grind of working on a farm, as opposed to imagining yourself jumping on a spotted pony, heading to Montana with the gang to go Buffalo, and, you know, you just weighing it out. You can see which one was more attractive. Yeah. You know, that yeah. lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just like, uh, James W. McAllister, he's yeah. slugging it oh, out on the farm. 100%. It's like, man, I kind of want to go shoot a bear and cook some trout and that, yeah. you know, yeah. like yeah. this is, this is what I'm more interested in. Yeah. And you think about the Nez Perce, you know, like you were talking about how they're rich in protein, but if you look at the geography and the topography and the environment of this County, it's basically a perfect setup. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have these streams that are just bringing a variety, uh, different seasonal runs of big, big seasonal runs of fish. Um, but not only that, it's set up so nicely where you go, you've got these high alpine mountains and then just a stone's throw away, you've got these deep canyons, which is perfect place to hang out in the winter. Um, nobody's going to have to make hay bales in this system. Right. Cause you're, you're moving your cattle and your horses, uh, seasonally, and then they can graze down, down there. And it didn't take long for the settlers to figure out the like, Oh, wait a minute. We can also drive them down into the canyon where there's open range and where horses and cattle can get to that feed where up in the valley you're, you're contending with snow. You know, so that system, I think, for me personally, who's a person who likes to wander, um, where you're moving from place to place in a year and you're seeing uh, not only different landscape, but, uh, uh, you know, different environment pretty much, you know, week by week by week by week, not a bad way to live. Yeah. You know? So following that, what did hunting look like for the settlers? I think, you know, of course, uh, as Oregon's uh, game laws developed, there was there was those time periods where there was no game law. And um, a lot of those folks, uh, you know, were hitting the, hitting the game pretty hard, which resulted, you know, in 1912, they had to reimport the elk. And then even into the 20s, you can see in our local papers where seeing a deer out in the field was newsworthy, like front page headline news. Mm -hmm. So 
as all those folks were settling out, you know, whether it's the promised country north of the valley, so the valley got settled up pretty well, and then these uh, Imnaha and these other further flung areas start, you know, settling, uh, there's more intense pressure on the game just for to feed your family. But there was also folks, we've, you know, you got accounts where, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so are bringing 4,000 deer hides out of the Imnaha to take over to Walla Walla for, yeah. uh, you know, to be tanned. So there were some big market hunting efforts oh, going yeah. on. Oh, and, yeah. And, and besides that, for the road building or the railroad building or um, uh, logging camps, all that sort of stuff, you know, there are people that were just making their money um, strictly off of supplying those camps with uh, game. Yeah. And like in Enterprise, even till late, you could go, you could roll into the uh, butcher shop and and buy bear meat yeah. or buy elk meat, you know yeah. what I mean? And so uh, there were people doing it just strictly to feed their family for subsistence. And there were folks that were doing it to make a profit and making a living off of it. We have a clipping of the hunting regulations in Oregon from 1903. 1903. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I can find it if I dig around on my phone for long enough, but moose is on there. Yeah. There were no limits on bighorn, but yeah. there were a season. Uh, pheasant was on there already. Yeah. Um, so Oregon was the first state that had pheasants. And uh, yeah, I think they might have had limits for grouse and some various things, but... Really yeah. interesting. I've uh, read quotes from ODFW that whitetail were abundant prior to 1890, um, but were basically extinct until restocking efforts on the Washington side of the Wanaha. And now we have more whitetail than mule deer, and mule deer are crashing. My sense, you know, is that I've I've not been able to find evidence of there being whitetail here in the past. Have you? No. And, but you know. When the settlers uh, mention, uh, they just say deer. They just and say so deer. you don't really know, or they talk, you know, what, what was here? Mm-hmm. I don't know. And um, I think the few, I'm trying to think of the few archaeological digs like uh, Lightning Creek and others, whether my memory is that it's mule deer, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't found any evidence to substantiate that. But I, I believe that whitetail are a non-native species here. Yeah. And, you know, if anybody has, has evidence that shows that they were here at all prior to 1890, I'd be fascinated to see it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that that's a, a pretty bold claim to make without showing your homework. Yeah, I do too. I don't, I've never seen it if it's there. But, you know, they they made distinctions on uh, on coyotes and wolves, even though those species weren't that different at the time. You know, the the wolves were only about twice the size of the of the coyotes at that time. And I saw I've I've seen some of the bounty descriptions uh, where they called wolves Montana coyotes. Yeah, 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 which is interesting. It is, and it, that that gets into a whole sort of curious. Because a lot of times in the settler accounts, if they say wolves, sometimes they're talking about coyotes. Right. And so you never can quite suss out, uh, you know, like Findlay's have an account of uh, trying to kill wolves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with talking with Vic Hoggins and other folks, you know, kind of reading and, you know, his thoughts and all that. Were there, why weren't there more wolves here? Or were there more wolves here? You know, and, and so again, and even in the Willamette Valley, if they're talking 
wolves. Sometimes they'll be talking coyotes, and sometimes they'll be talking wolves. So you're not ever totally clear what's going on there. Um, Were the elk extinct or extirpated prior to reintroduction in 1912, or were they just diminished? I think that, I think according to Vic, yeah, and looking at some of the genetic studies, that there were definitely pockets in the Minam, and there were definitely pockets in the Wenaha that had held on. And at least in his opinion, I think the work that they've done shows that uh, there weren't much, there weren't many, but in these little holdout hidey holes that there were a few around. But you can definitely, in the newspaper accounts, as time goes on, you can just see they're not mentioned. Yeah. Early on, you know, you'll see so-and-so killed 37 elk at the head of the canyon and, you know, da, da, but, but uh, as time goes on, you just, you don't mm-hmm. see it. And so um, they'd put the herd on them, I think, pretty hard. But my guess is, and Vic's opinion is that, yeah, they there were some holding out and hiding out. Our human population in the county is largely the same as it was in 1900. Kind of take me through... Uh, the, the 20th century and what what happened in Wallowa County. Is that when we started getting some of those early photographs? Yeah, I mean, the it's a shame that we don't have more photographs, you know. Um, has the technology changed on that photography? You know, those early glass negatives, especially the wet ones, where you basically had that process pretty tricky. Mm-hmm. Um packing the plates in and all of that. Um, so our earliest photographs really would be middle 1880s. Okay. Um, and then as surprisingly as, as they got flexible film um, and, and started moving that direction, then we start to see more, but really doesn't take off till about 1900. Okay. And then we start to see a lot more with the little brownie Kodak cameras. So any, Anybody basically could pick one of those up and take some photographs, but is it Hiram Mary? Yeah, uh, I love those photographs. Ah, great photographer. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Yeah, uh, it, it's almost amazing to me that you could have like somebody like him. He he feels impossible to me yeah. that you could have a great photographer in this area under these conditions at a time where how do you even compare? one photograph to the next one, there's so few out there. Like how do you even develop yourself as a great photographer? And, yeah. And in a way that endures to this day, yeah. those are great photographs. Oh, they are. Yeah. And I mean, uh, he's, he's just an interesting character all the way around. I mean, came out of South or North Dakota or Minnesota. Well, I'll get that wrong, but um, you know, he was basically homesteaded and by himself and a lot of that stuff. Of course, that most of his place burned up in the Grizzly Fire, whatever year that was. Um, but recording basically the whole history, the time he was there, and I think he moved there in 1897 and started homesteading on, on grouse there just on the far side, north side of the river, um, you know, uh, and never married and was the community photographer for everybody and documented that whole thing and took some incredible photographs. Yeah. I mean, really, just the detail of them is astounding. You know, the quality of them is, yeah. Do you have a favorite? Oh, my gosh. Well, there's one of him that has gone miss. I mean, we've got a copy of it, but it's not a very good copy. Um, It was basically... Uh, some folks had t- taken a Xerox copier out to Orvis Moore's place and, and uh, made a uh, Xerox copy 
of the photograph uh, and where the originals went haven't seen it but uh, it's basically uh, Hiram Mary he's uh, standing in his yard he's holding an old barn cat and he's his pants have been patched so many times mm. and he's got he's taken the photograph by pulling a wire so it's a self-portrait and it's just this really cool photograph of him with that barn cat but my other favorite is probably my uh and maybe you've seen it around is uh of william russell uh william was a settler out there too william russell had killed a man over um out of dayton he felt like either this the man he killed was you know trying to get with his wife so he killed him he ended up going to Stella Coombe the territorial prison in Washington and then Washington Territory and then when they were building the Walla Walla prison they sent him down there and he was in there for 13 years but when he got out he he his brother had settled in Troy so he went over to Troy but by the time Hiram Mary's taking a picture of him he's this old man you know got a big beard and in this portrait that Mary takes of him he's got he's got his boots wrapped with burlap and you know just twine and the snow's pretty deep and he's got his he's got his cattle dog with him and then he's holding his gun in this picture and big grizzled beard and uh just a really great photograph and the depth in his eyes yeah 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 it's it's incredible yeah 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 Yeah. that one with the ladies grouse hunting yeah, I love that one. Yeah. So good. Yeah, I love that so one. So good. Yeah. Just They've dressed the to the nines. Yeah. Hats. Looks like they're about to go to the Kentucky Derby yeah. or something. Yeah. And they've got just whatever guns are lying yeah. around. Killed a couple of grouse. Right. I love it. I do too. It'd be super annoying to me to hunt grouse in those dresses. <laughs> You're just like, that seems like, yeah. Yeah. That's funny. But it yeah. makes me wonder if they didn't, uh, you know, like kill the grouse wearing whatever they were wearing and then get dressed up yeah. for the picture. They might have. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty, pretty fancy hot grouse hunting gear if yeah. you ask me. But uh, hilarious. Yeah. Or, you know, just shot them on the way back from church or. Yeah. Yeah. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, we kind of saw. We saw mining come and go a couple times. We really saw like a steady rise in timber for 90 years. Oh, yeah. um, tell me about splash dam logging. Yeah. I think that's something that most of the world doesn't know about. Yeah. That's wild stuff, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, all that, you know, was really 1908 and beyond because, you know, to get that lumber out of here in any kind of commercially viable way, you got to have the railroad. Because, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but like you're talking about those, and I'm sure you've been up and looked at what's left of the old splash. Well, there's a number of them, but the, the one just beyond uh, upriver from Red Horse Ranch there, um, looking at, at that and then looking at the photographs. Because, of course, John Scovlin did uh, did quite a bit of good research on that mine area and how exactly that uh, worked. And then looking at the photographs, it's pretty mind-bending. Uh, man, they were tearing that river up when they were doing that. And I think, if I if I remember right, um, it was about a five, if you're talking uh, driving logs from around Red's Horse Ranch down to Minum, uh, to Minum, current yeah. day Minum, was about a five charge, river charge process. Well, it, I mean, there's people that are going to be listening to this in, in Kenya. So kind of paint the picture of, of what this is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So you've got this roadless area up this uh, wild river canyon with big uh, old growth timber, uh, a mix of ponderosa, fir, and tamarack. And so 
loggers were going up there in these logging camps and again supplied by folks uh both their own supplies, but they had hunters in the camps go out and kill deer and elk and whatever to help feed the camp. Beats cutting trees. Yeah. And these guys, you know, I mean, (laughs) if you think about what they're doing, I mean, they're, this is a lot of this, this will burn some calories in terms of cutting these old, these big, big trees. With cross cuts and axes. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so the system that they developed to get those logs out of there, because they didn't, it was roadless and they didn't have a railroad was to build these uh, splash dams, back the water up, cut the trees, and then get them down to the river's edge, get them into the water, and then release the water behind the splash dam. And of course, they'd have whole crews trying to keep that straight and herd the logs down wherever they got hung up, which was a dangerous business in itself. Oh, man. Um, And so once that initial charge went through, they could get the logs so far, then they'd have to let the water... Uh, fill back up behind the splash dam, give it another charge, and keep driving them down the river that way until they had got them down to uh, mine them at that time, had a couple of mills and like six taverns, six saloons in town. Mm. So it's a pretty busy place. But And milling that lumber would have been no treat either. Uh, a, a few years ago, we had tremendously high water and the number of logs that came, you know, down this the salmon river and down hell's canyon was remarkable uh and i was rafting on it on part of that time and there was a log about every eight seconds coming down river yeah. and by the time they hit a soton and lewiston uh it was solid logs all the way across the river it looked like you could walk from idaho yeah. to washington on the logs and a bunch of guys were piking those logs out of there to get free lumber to mill and they found really quickly that every little crack in those logs was full of sand yeah, and they couldn't mill it. It, yeah. it would eat through their saw blades yeah. almost immediately. Yeah. And I'm sure this was a problem with the splash dam logging as well. So they must've had milling techniques that were able to, to defeat all the sand and, and rocks and stuff that would have been in those logs. I'm sure I, you're gotta be hundred percent right. Because yeah. you know, when you release all that water, there is all kinds of sediment and sand and grit. It's like uh um, I've always marveled like those, that specialist skill of sharpening saw blades yeah. is a whole thing. Yeah. And if you've ever, you know, dabbled around in your own chainsaw sharpening, you know, it's, it's a skill set. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so they, I'm sure that that, that was a big part of it because yeah, yeah it, it had to be, like you said, they had to be loaded with, with, uh, uh, did, um, did they send any of them all the way to Lewiston? Uh, there is a couple of accounts, yeah, that um, they were they they actually did that. Actually, some really early accounts that when they were building a uh, railroad over between Walla Walla and um, and then pushing the railroad up towards Lewiston, that uh, early. I th- I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it was '74, where uh, guys driving from the Wallawa River Canyon driving logs loses his life doing it, mm-hmm. driving them all that way uh, to fulfill contracts for those railroads that they were building further down, way down river. So that's crazy to think about. Yeah. Um, I don't even know how you do it. He must've had a crew. Sure. Uh, I, yeah. I don't even know. That's a, <laughs> that's a long ways to, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're trying to herd a, a bunch of logs down there, you know, there's some significant whitewater too. Oh yeah. 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 And all kinds of places to get stuff hung up and, you know, yeah. 
So, so wild and probably, you know, walking on top of those logs down river for a lot of that. Yeah. Um, the balance. Yeah. Required to do that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, really, really phenomenal that, that type of effort. And there is, there's been a lot of stories of just gargantuan feats of labor. I know of a, of a mine back in the mountains, uh, that Doug McDaniels would talk about. And there was a barrel outside the mouth of the mine that was half full of worn out pickheads. Imagine yeah. that yeah. for just a moment, like taking a pick and swinging it into rock until it is down yeah. to the nubs on both ends and then filling half of a freaking barrel up no. with those things. Yeah. That's a lot of swings. I've done a little pick swing in my life, but you can imagine how long it would take you to grind a pick down so yeah. that you had to toss it in a barrel that you'd, you'd used it. Yeah. That's crazy to think about. So that pick head there next to you, um, I found in, in, uh, in a creek in Hell's Canyon, oh, wow. uh, next to a shallow grave. That's crazy. Yeah. And I think that Somebody, somebody got buried and whoever did the burying said enough of this and threw their pick down and walked off. Yeah. Um, yeah. But shallow graves are also the common here because we don't have soil in no. many places. No. So no. yeah, you can find graves on a lot of these, a lot of these hilltops, especially. Yeah. 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 A lot of them yeah. around. Yeah. yeah. If you could go back to any single year in Wallowa County and, and live that year, what year would you pick and why? Well, I mean, I would definitely want to uh, come through and spend some time here when the, you know, the Wallowa Band was here and, you know, get a chance to meet uh, young Joseph and, and Olicott and uh, for sure. So I would probably pick like a year, like 74 or 75. Um, yeah, you know, there's uh, the uh, TT Gear who was the governor of Oregon around the turn of the century wrote a book about his, his coming in from the Grand Round Valley. Cause he was living in Cove, um, as a like 22 year old on a fishing trip into Wallowa County. And, um, you know, it's funny because it's a great story. He basically writes, there's like 16 of them and away they come and they, he describes the trip and how much fun they had up at the lake catching all the, you know, salmon, got a leaky uh, they they hauled a rowboat over in their wagon um mm. caught all these cut all these salmon then they bought um some old sugar barrels and uh, uh barrels from the locals and kegged up all their fish and as they're coming back out they you know of course there wasn't a road at that uh clear up the way trail but they bumped the uh barrels out of the back of the wagon scattered all their salmon out across the prairie. But, you know, the funny thing about that guy, he's, he's writing that, he's writing that story. And at the exact time that he's, as they're coming in as with a party of 16 of them on an extended camping trip into the Valley, young Joseph and, uh, the Nez Perce, uh, the vast majority of the Wallow band is already down in Wallow at the confluence of the river. And there's no way to get through there on their camping trip without going right through the middle of that at the same, at the exact same time. Cause he writes day by day what they're doing, uh, at this precise time that they're moving through Wallowa, uh, according to the military reports, young Joseph is showing up 
with his gang. And they're describing 2,000 head of horses, 80 lodges, uh, you know, um, etc. And this guy in his account doesn't mention a native presence one, which is sort of like, what? You're really? leaving out part of the good part of the story, you know, what was hmm. going on as you guys were going through and up to the lake. So he, he strictly keeps it. He doesn't mention the military. He doesn't mention a single native person. He just tells the story of them going up there and hunting and fishing. So if I had my, just to be along on that trip, even if I could only go for, be go back in time for a couple of weeks, I'd want to be along on that trip and see. And then I'd also like to ask him, why didn't you include this other yeah. stuff? I think the reason is, because he was writing that book for just general readership. He's pretty, I think, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He didn't want to ruffle any feathers. He just wanted to write a story about going on a fishing trip and all these other complications he wasn't going to include in that story. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And they also kind of tell it uh, as if they were out in the wilderness um, when this area was just wild. Gotcha. But what you see is like, uh, well, the, there's, a whole, there's a whole pile of military in here trying to keep the peace between the settlers and the native folk. And um, that, that maybe would have ruined the story, I guess. I don't know. Huh. Yeah, it is always interesting to look at what's left out, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It takes, I don't have that, that skill as often as I would like. Um, I'm, I always admire people who are able to, to see what's missing, uh, because it asks the right question. Yeah. But you know, it's one of those things where if you read that account of the governor's account and you don't know, you just read the account and that, that's the account. But then, you know, you you come across another thing, like you're like, oh, well, there's a military report from this same time. Oh, and they're describing what's going on. Then you put the two together. You're like, wait a minute. Yeah. Oh, you know, but if, if I'd stop there, you would just, you know, you just have a fun fishing trip and you wouldn't know all this other stuff going on. But did much change between 1908 and World War II? I mean, you know, I mean. The, the obvious thing that comes to uh, mind, of course, is uh, the Depression. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny that uh, most of the folks who kind of reflect on that didn't seem all that put out by the Depression. That's you know? my sense, too. Like, they're they're poor, but they had enough to get by. Yeah. And it, it didn't, they didn't really become more poor. Yeah. 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 So I think, you know, relatively, of course, there are some hardships because it wasn't as easy living but uh, relatively speaking, they were the people here are better able to weather it, I think, than folks say in the city or someplace like that. Yeah. But and we didn't get that that dust bowl yeah. kind of stuff here. Yeah. You know, we're we're almost always uh, really poor in our rainfall, but we're rich in rivers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And as long as we get snow in the yeah. winter, then you can irrigate in the summer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the verticality of Wallowa County is is so interesting because it's often the thing that draws people here because it's beautiful, but what comes with it is often the thing that drives people away or, or grinds them down into failure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a yeah. I mean, my my thing is I hope we can keep it from becoming Aspen or you know one of these other places. Like I I. To me, it's important that we hold on to our pastures and we, you know, we, we, I, I don't want a Walmart here. I mean, yeah, that stuff, that, that's why this place is special. And I mean, yeah, almost every business is 
is a local yep. business. We have yep. very few franchises. Yep. Our population hasn't changed. Um, our Most of our economy is still based on agriculture. Yep. Uh, and we have lots of tourists that come through, and we have a handful of tourists that try to stay, and some of them make it a few years, yep. some of them make it a few months, yep. but yep. most of them don't make it. Yeah. Yeah, which is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, couldn't <laughs> be happier about it. Which is a good yeah. thing. Yeah. No, I yeah. it, come, come, but uh, go on home. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, uh, it, it's probably you know wrong of me, but when they eventually break and leave, uh, I love it. Yeah, makes me happy every time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know it's funny too because I I had some neighbors that had moved in from Seattle. Everyone, a nice older couple, but. Um, after three or four winters, they just said, nah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> nah, they, they, we're, we're getting out of here. Yeah. Well, yeah. you're not supposed to live up here in the winter. Yeah. You're supposed to go down to the canyon. Exactly right. Uh, so, yeah. you know, yeah. us, us yeah. idiots that live up here in the winter time and just hurt and struggle and, uh, yeah. yeah, you can't go anywhere. There are highways, roads close all the time. You run out of food. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. 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 And there's no skiing, you know, yeah. it's just tough. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's what's saving us. Yeah. As long as that can keep saving us, then we're okay. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Every time they fix, they make the road better, I, I get madder and madder. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would like them to go back and make it uh, narrower and windier. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get some potholes in <laughs> yeah. this thing. Put it back like rattlesnake. Make, yeah. it, make it worse. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm an old curmudgeon. That's, that's my, that's where I'm at. Yeah. You know, another interesting thing since since we've been talking about the Nez Perce originally um, being the occupants here, or at least at the time that European settlers came in, and then the government taking that from them, the government has also taken a huge piece of this land from uh, European settlers that followed on, which was, you know, the uh, the Snake River Corridor. Ah. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, mean, I think it will probably happen again. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's lots of folks that uh you know them, I know them, uh who were down there that have really bitter feelings about how that went down. And um you can understand why, you know, you go into those places where, you know, Cash Creek and places where people were down there and yeah, got booted out of there. Yeah. It's it's yeah. It, but a lot of that stuff, you know, I mean, I, I think about uh, Nez Perce conceptions of ownership isn't even the right word. You know, like private, you know, the notions of private property and then, you know, the system that the Nez Perce had about how land was used. Because mm -hmm. like you're saying, anytime you get a bunch of folks together, you're going to have some conflict about who gets what. You know, it reminds me of that old, uh, well not that old Leonard Cohen song. Um, what's he say? He says, um, from the homicidal bitchin' that goes down in every kitchen to determine who will eat and who will serve. You know, so it does come down to that kind of stuff about the division of labor and not only the division of labor, but who gets access to what. Um, and that's all coming from the land, the water, the fish, the papa, all that. So, you know, we always think that private, the notions of private property have always been 100% around. And then you start investigating the development of concept of private property, you know, from the feudal system to more of a capitalist system in those 
yeah, in that period in English history where it was under feudalism where, you know, you had your own chunk of land and you had a contract with the feudal lord, but still those things were passed on from person to person, but they were the com- they were, there were the commons shared by everybody. And up here you look at the Nez Perce, of course they were, you know, it was more complicated than this just being the Wallawa band, you know, because the, uh, a Cayuse, a portion of the Cayuse would fish, say, and mine them at that spot. And then just down the river, you and Matilla were fishing at that spot. Mm. And so it was more about uh, your connection to that specific place. Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you could go there and you could say, just like you can do right now in your life, oh, yeah, we've been hunting that spot and up in Dobbin Basin. My dad hunted, you know, my grandpa, he got an elk over there one time back in. So you've got this lineage of story that ties you to place. Um, and you've got connection uh, through your relatives. Maybe you marry into that bunch. But <clears throat> just by the fact that you can, the name of the place and the stories that are associated with the place um, tie you to the use and the ownership, if you will, ownership, air quotes, to that place, which is a different conception of than from the, you know, the folks coming and saying, this is my 160, here are the, here are the lines of it. You know, those two approaches to living with the land or how you share resources or how you divvy up resources um, are different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're different. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. My, my sense of land ownership is a little bit different too. Like you take the six ranch, for example, uh, you know, I have, I have rights and responsibilities here, but if I don't pay my taxes, then the government takes this land and auctions it off. Yep. So I don't really actually own it. Yep. I get some rights with, you know, owning it kind of, but yep. if I don't continue to pay for it every year, then it's not mine anymore. That's hundred percent right. And yeah. you know, that's really no different from those feudal systems that you were talking about. Um, you know, we, we just kind of exchanged some, some labels. Yeah. 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 Uh, what year would you not want to live in? Hmm. Now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah. In Willow County, yeah. in terms of living in Willow County, I mean, I'd, I'd give it a go in almost any year, I think, but, um, <clears throat> you know, there's, there's some moments that weren't too pretty, you know, like, you know, the like the resurgence of the KKK, what was, you know, happening um, in the 20s. Did that uh, happen here? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, that was kind of. Was maybe. that was that a Maxville thing? Like, what, why did that even happen? I mean, I think it was, you know, I mean, the U.S. had kind of went through the trauma of World War One, And um, it was this sudden, you know, the U.S. had been kind of minding their own business, if you will, for kind of for some time, but got into World War One, And then, you know, I think the, the big scare really was about uh, Catholic influence in terms of the Pope will tell Eastern European immigrants, which are, you know, kind of really starting to swarm into the country over that uh, time period um, and influence American how America is. So they were really worried about that influence. Um, the Pope directing 
mm-hmm. a certain segment of these immigrants that didn't. So you saw this. You could see it in the county, you know, um, a lot of that, you know, from cross burnings and, um, you know, of course it didn't get as ugly and as it did in, say, Southern Oregon, but um, still going on pretty, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know, an- another thing we talked about yesterday is how local history does not get taught in schools. Yeah. And what a shame that is. Yeah. And I, like, I get it. It's kind of, you've got to, you've got to educate the children of the nation and, and there needs to be a fairly consistent method to do that. I I do understand that, but, but what a shame that, that we don't talk through, you know, the, the, the greatness of, of what we were and the ugliness of what we were and, and to understand all that. I, I think it's so important to, to really dig into history, to learn it and, and learn, learn mistakes yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's why I'm so grateful for this conversation and for yeah. your knowledge. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I mean, I know I was talking to some Whitman uh, college students and um, also, uh, gosh, he was there. It was several native folk and um, uh, some other professor types. And they had just asked me to talk about Willow County. And so I'm talking to these students primarily. And all I did was just showing some, showing them some pictures and then just pulling out some quotes, say. And I could see that the, the students were frustrated with me mm-hmm. um, because I wasn't sort of synthesizing anything. I wasn't saying, here's how it was. I was just saying, uh, and you know how history is. You can pull, you could cherry pick anything you want, sure. right? I was just taking out sort of representative things on topics that I was interested, in, like we've been talking about, mostly na- native uh, settler relations and uh, attitudes and beliefs or regarding nature for, on both sides, and just presenting that to the class, these college students. And at the end of it, they're just like frustrated, like, what? Well, you got to tell us what, what, what? Uh, and I was struck by that. I was like, oh. Right. Okay. So they wanted me to come in and tell them, here's how it was. Here's how it was. And I, I resist that. I don't really want to do that. I just want to say there's a lot out there. Um, it's like if you go to the ocean, there's a lot out there. And so to find out about it, you got to do a further study. These are just kind of teasers. I'm not here to tell you how it was. I'm just here to give you some things to think about. And the older folks afterwards were, they came up and said, oh, I was kind of apologize for the students. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it's, it's fine. Uh, but they weren't, they, they found that approach perfect mm-hmm. for the, in their mind that they were just like, it piqued their curiosity and they wanted to know more about that where the students just wanted me to wrap it up in a neat package and say, here's how it was. And then they could go along the way with a bit of certainty. And I don't, I don't think the, if you study history at any depth, I don't think it really gives you that. I think there's more, it only makes it more complicated, more nuanced, yeah. uh, more, it, it resists that sort of, it should, that sort of overarching statement that is going to wrap it up in a nice package, I think. I think that's just a symptom of the the idealism that comes with students of a younger age. Yeah. Like that's yeah. where our brains are at. And yeah. That's kind of what we're used to and, and what we expect. Yeah. And uh, then you get led through uh, a long series of 
of crushing disappointments and realize that <laughs> <laughs> it's not like yeah. that at all. No. And I mean, I get it. I mean, you know, you could be frustrated. Just, Hey, give me the, give me, give me the synopsis and then I'll move on. You know, I get that. But I think that history should be about teaching you how to think, uh, you know, to think about thinking and not, you know, you know, like here's the three main causes of the civil war. Bye-bye. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause that's, that's a surface level that, you know, right. Um, you're not getting a whole lot out of that. So let, let's put a bow on it like this. If somebody has a question like you did, how should they go about starting to answer that question through studying history? Um, how, how did you do it? How would you do it differently? If, if you, you know, started with, with a basic question like that, something that you wonder about within your own local history or maybe someplace else, um, you know, somebody wants to research this on their own, how do they do it? Yeah. I mean, I think the hard part is finding the sources. What are the sources? Where are they? Uh, you know, how do you get these things? You know, now that we live in a time where uh, a lot of this stuff is a lot easier since a lot of it's online and you can research, makes research a lot easier, whether you're hitting up Ancestry.com or you're looking at the uh, land, uh, homestead filings on, you know, uh, BLM site or, um, a lot more newspapers have been thrown on that you could, that are uh, searchable now. So it's a lot easier, say, now than it was for a historian 20 years ago to try to dive in this. But um, knowing where the, these old newspapers are located and uh, these historical accounts, because they're just scattered. I mean, mm. and so that's probably the hardest part is trying to dive into where the sources and, you know, for me, it could be anything from like, okay, I want to look at the financial conditions of the folks coming in. So that's making a trip over to Union County to dig through their, the earliest tax rolls they have are from 73. So, okay, I can look and see who's in Wallowa County in 73 and what they got. Because they're listing how many horses you got, how many sheep you got, how many pigs you got, how much money you got in your pocket, um, how much the value of your uh land is worth how uh, how your household implements and tools they're laying it out there so you can look at that sort of information in terms of economics or you can start diving into the old newspapers and on um, our work at the history center with the Wallowa history center is ongoing to try to make that stuff more available to people so they can access it so if you go on our, our website, uh, you can pull up uh, links to a lot of the newspapers we've digitized, and you can read them. So we worked with the uh, University of Oregon just recently to get all of the oldest chieftains up till um, 1899 digitized. And we finally got that done. So if you go on that site, you can pull up, say, those remaining chieftains in that time period, the earliest ones, and you can read them page by page. It's right there. You can know. you word search them as well? Yes, you can, um, and uh, which makes it great. Like mm. if you want to throw in, you know, like me, I'm going to throw in coyote in there because I want to know something about the war on coyote. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I'm interested in that. So I want to know about trapping coyotes. I want to know, you know, all of that. So I'm I'm looking on there and it'll bring up those hits it's not perfect because a lot of those papers are printed a little rough mm -hmm. so it may miss a word or two occasionally but generally it does a pretty good job yeah. and so if you're into a certain subject whether it's deer elk like you know i'm interested in those things you can keyword search and we've got a whole bunch of 
because, you know, the Chieftain wasn't the only paper. There's a Lostine Leader and lots of other paper, uh, Enterprise Border Signal um, that we've digitized on there. And then also, of course, like the Horner papers, which now you can digitally search. And so um, a lot of that stuff we've, and we continue to put on our website so that people can hit those up and find out more information. And what's that website again? It's just uh, WallowHistoryCenter.org. Okay. And then if you go to the Research Tools tab, it'll bring up some of that stuff and you can you can pull those up. And Yeah. Yeah. And folks, if you're panicking about how to spell the word Wallowa, don't worry about it because if you go to the podcast description, there's going to be a link in there that you can click and it'll take you straight to that website. And um, you can research research this county or you can uh, go do some research on, on where you come from yeah. if you're not from here. Yeah. David, incredible. Your your memory, so sharp. <laughs> I like, don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this is awesome. I learned so much today. Me too. I learned so much today. Yeah. Uh and I'm I'm gonna be developing questions of my own and now I've got a place to go to to look them up. I kinda wanna go punch in uh Whitetail and see if anything comes up in the in the early newspapers. Yeah, and I also I'm like, Oh yeah, dogs. What? What yeah. was going on with the dogs? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or or uh, Appaloosas. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a ton there that yeah. I'd be really curious about finding out more. Yeah. yeah. I need to run that Appaloosa thing down a little bit more. That there is a documentary about it, um, about tr- tracking the appies between Mongolia and here. And uh, I I've got some questions. I, I have think... you does Dennis? What's he know about that? Dennis Sheehy. So I, I had Dennis on the show. I need to get him back. Uh, you know, he got he got all spun up talking about the uh, uh, the wild Asiatic ass. He, I think he has a good yeah. time saying yeah. that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, I didn't ask Dennis about the Appaloosas. I need to. Yeah. Yeah. He would be definitely one that should know. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the other thing you mentioned, too, is like. Yeah, what kind of cattle exactly were the what did mm-hmm. Nespers run and 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 then early on here, what kind of cattle was the preferred? Yeah, you know, they had to have been tough. And that was the thing about the Herefords is all the fat is on the outside of their carcass, so they could handle the winter. They could eat crappy feed. Yeah, uh, they didn't make a very good piece of meat, but they could survive, which is yeah foremost. But I I think that it was probably Coriennes that the Nespers were running. And, uh, and that would have been a, a good breed if you're having to trail cattle to Kansas, Yeah, you know, they could handle it. Yeah. Yeah. Tough cows. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, I, I didn't know if they just had like a mixed bag of th- stuff Yeah, or, or what, what was going on there? They weren't yeah. Angus. No, they weren't <laughs> Angus. They were not, they were not Angus. No. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, we've both got questions. I love yeah. it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's always one question is yeah. going to lead to another question. Yeah, yeah for cool. sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, yeah. everybody. Thank you all very much for listening. I'm going to keep bringing you these stories from normal people just like you who have done extraordinary things. Everyone is an expert at something, and they have interesting perspectives on life and work and the environment and all the things that we care about. I'm going to keep bringing that to you. And I want to thank you so much for making this show possible. I also want to thank Emily Bratcher for producing this show. She does a great job editing. Really appreciate her. 
I want to thank John Chatelain. He did the art for the Six Ranch podcast. And Celia, soon to be Harlander, uh, she digitized that so that we can get it out there on the internet for you. Also want to thank Justin Hay for writing this original music and the beautiful whistling that you're listening to right now. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Please keep listening to the show. Write me a review if you feel like it. And just keep doing your thing and we'll all learn from this together. It's been fun and, you know, we're, we're just getting started. <laughs>